morning. My name is R. Dallas Green. Good to see you all. Uh, we're in Romans chapter 15. By about now, your Bible should be opening right up to Romans 15. You may wonder if there's any other book in the Bible because we've been in the book of Romans all year. We have about three more sermons in Romans we're going to do. The passage we're going to look at today is Romans 15, verses 7 through 20. In Romans 15, 20, Paul begins to pull back the curtain a bit and show you what his motivation, his ambition is. It says, I have presented the good news of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem to Illyricum. My ambition has always been to preach the good news of Jesus Christ where the name of Christ has not been heard. To not build upon someone else's foundation, but to start a pioneer work. Paul is beginning to help us understand his ambition. You ask, what is ambition? Ambition is a strong desire or an urge to achieve something. We tend to admire people with ambition, don't we? We get concerned when someone doesn't have much ambition, like a father who says, my daughter's dating somebody without a whole lot of ambition. If we're achievers or overachievers, we try to motivate somebody from the outside with our goals. And if they're not motivated, they tend to get annoyed at us for pushing them, or they dig in their heels and don't even try. Because what you want for them is either something they don't want, or they feel they never can measure up to. A boss who is an achiever may try to send more work to his staff, incentivizing them with money or benefits. But if the staff member isn't motivated by money, they either will tell the boss no, or begrudgingly do the extra work and hate the boss. So ambition is a strong desire to achieve something. And people are motivated very differently, aren't we? Some people are motivated to travel the world, to see places they've never seen before. My father, aside from serving his country, went in the Navy to see the world. For a while, I had the ambition, personally, to work with some of the underground pastors in China. Some had the ambition to buy a house. Now, that's increasingly more difficult, given the fact there's a shortage of houses and the premium paid for houses, but saving up their money, making other purchases so they can buy a house. That's their ambition. Some people have the ambition to learn a language. My son Jimmy had to learn Arabic in order to do what he does. With our work in Haiti, I often had the desire to learn more and more Creole or refresh my French, which had become a pretty rusty. Some people have the ambition to be financially secure. They'd like to be a network engineer or work in cybersecurity, to be in the military, to teach children. Some have the desire, the ambition to be a parent. We heard some beautiful um, prayers today for parents and words about parenting or the desire to be a grandparent. Jimmy's wife, Margaret, is expecting their first child and to her parents, she will give them their first grandchild. And we look forward to being grandparents again as well. One grandparent said, if I knew how much fun being a grandparent was, I would skip being a parent and go straight to being a grandparent. Some have the desire to lose weight. Now, most of us can look at ourselves in the mirror with COVID and see a little bit of weight gain. Maybe it's time to lose a little weight, a little fused pounds. Some have the ambition to do something for somebody, like send out an Operation Christmas Child box or share the gospel at the jail, or to feed the hungry. 
I think it's fair to say many people's ambition over the last couple of years has been along the lines of economic survival or personal survival. We've lost sight of some of the loftier goals and just tried to get by. I want you to hear this morning someone's goals that may inspire you. So let me just ask as we begin, are you ambitious? What drives you? What gets you up in the morning? What keeps you up at night? What do you dream about? Because Paul had an ambition to take this beautiful gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum. Now, we're going to use technology and we'll show you how this works. So, Paul himself was in this town called Jerusalem. It was there that stories were beginning to circulate and all across, this is the Roman Empire, about how Jesus had fed 5,000 from a kid's lunchbox. He had no problem touching the oozing pus of a leper, that he could heal the blind, that he claims to be the Son of God. He predicted in Jerusalem that he would be rejected, crucified, buried, and rise again. The question was, did he really rise from the dead under heavy Roman guard, or did someone steal his body? The entire Roman Empire was in an uproar. His followers claimed that he was God. The Jews said he couldn't have been Messiah because he didn't overthrow the Romans. So Stephen brings this up at the synagogue, and they take him outside to stone him. And there, watching at Stephen's, Stephen die in a pool of blood is a young lawyer by the name of Saul, who comes from the town of Tarsus, which is up here. This is Tarsus. So Paul had come down from Tarsus to Jerusalem, and he now was breathing out threats against the church. He was trying to arrest the Christians, bring persecution against the church, silence the Christians. So what Paul had done is he had learned that up in Damascus, there was a church. And he was on his way from Jerusalem up to Damascus when he encountered the Lord in a bright, shining light, knocking him from his horse. And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And Paul said, who are you, Lord? And he says, it will be shown for you what you are to do. So he went up to Damascus. And there, Paul was blinded for three days. And he received the commission from a man named Ananias who said, he is my chosen instrument to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to kings, and to the people of Israel. And Paul immediately took on himself this commission to preach this precious gospel in the city of Damascus. And people heard him testify and prove that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And so Paul went back from Damascus to Jerusalem, and at Jerusalem he tried to join the apostles there. But everybody was afraid of him because he had breathed out threats against the church. But there was one man whose name was Barnabas, and Barnabas believed in Paul, and he testified that his life had been changed, that he now was testifying to the gospel and so Paul was received, he was accepted into the apostles. And so Paul went back to Tarsus, his home city. <clears throat> and he was at Tarsus, Barnabas came to get him because he went to the town of Antioch. In Antioch, there was a 
emerging church. And for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul taught at this church. And then one day they were praying. And as they prayed, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So what happened is from Antioch, they sailed from there down to, Tar to the city of, to the island of Cyprus. Cyprus is this little island about 150 miles from Antioch. And it was there that they sailed into the seaport Salamis and they worked their way across the island to Paphos. In Paphos, there was a Roman governor, his name was Sergius Paulus, but he attached himself to Elymas, the Jewish sorcerer. And Paul had some strong words to say to Elymas, and then Sergius Paulus became a believer. So in the entire island of Cyprus, there was one new, brand new Christian. From Cyprus, they sailed on, back to my map, they sailed on to, over here, to um, the city of Italia. And they worked away to Lystra, and to Iconium, and to Derbe, and to Antioch. What was happening was, Paul was going from city to city, proclaiming the gospel. First of all, in the synagogues, and the Gentiles were there. But often what would happen would be the Jews would begin to oppose him. But Paul continued to preach bravely in the name of Christ. And he was doing signs and miracles. But in all of these cities, he was being opposed and facing opposition. But Paul continued to preach. And gradually, incrementally, there was converts until he came to the town of Lystra. And when he came to the town of Lystra, there was a man there. And he was lame. He could not walk. He'd been crippled from birth. And Paul saw this man had faith to believe. And he said, stand up and walk. And the man, can you see this? The man who had never walked before stood up and began to walk. And they thought that Paul and Barnabas were gods. They believed they were like Zeus and like Hermes. And they began to sacrifice bulls to them and offer up garlands. And Paul said, no, 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 no. We are just men. Don't worship us. And then what happened is the Jews turned the tide again and they stoned Paul. And they left him from dead. And the Bible's not clear as to whether Paul was resurrected from the dead or he was miraculously healed. But Paul got up from being stoned and he went back into these cities and he preached the gospel until he came back to the town of Antioch. So what you hear is Paul had this ambition of taking the gospel to where it had not been preached before. And so he begins to wind down this letter of Romans and tells us some things that every believer needs. Number one, every believer needs to be accepted. There was division in the church at Rome. There is division in America, isn't there? There's a division that's tearing up families. Everybody has a family, has somebody who's on a mission one way or the other, right? You have the woke and the unwoke. You have the Black Lives Matter and the All Lives Matter. You have the liberals and the conservatives. You have the vaxxers and the non-vaxxers. You have people who believe the election was unfair and people who believe the election was the fairest ever. You have people who believe that abortion is wrong, all people who believe and people who believe that a woman has a right to an abortion. You have people who believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. And you have a, people who believe that everybody should have the right to love whoever they wish to love. 
There are matters where the church must draw a line in the sand. God has clearly spoken on some of these issues. On the issue of abortion, the Bible is clear. David wrote that God knit him together in his mother's womb, that life begins at conception. On the issue of same-sex marriage, the Bible is clear. Marriage is between a man and a woman. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two become one. But on the issue of vaccinations, the Bible doesn't speak. Some argue, out of love for my brother, giving protection to myself, we all should get vaccinated. Some argue they are compl complications and risks with the vaccine. Out of conscience, they choose not to. What has happened in America is we have elevated the lesser matters to the greater position. Some would say we'll only have unity when everybody sees the issue like I see it. In other words, my conviction needs to become your mandate. Paul is a realist. He knows we won't all agree on everything. Sometimes we need to say we agree to disagree, but we agree to love each other no matter what, regardless. We are going to accept each other even as God has accepted us because we are the family of God. And in the family, people see things differently. Think about it this way. Let's say there's four of you in your family, and the decision is, where shall we have our lunch? Will everybody in the family agree on where we're going to have lunch? Or will there be some disagreement? The fact that we disagree about where we're going to have lunch doesn't negate the fact that we are family, isn't it? We are always going to be family, and we're going to believe the best about each other, even if we disagree. So the first thing every believer needs is to be accepted. To be accepted is to be invited to the table. It means to be welcomed. It means you have a place in this family. So we won't agree on politics or on the vaccine, but can we agree on something more important? Jesus is called a friend of sinners, and that means he can be my friend. And a friend loves at all times. God so loved the world, he gave his son. So God set his love on you and me. And he didn't give us rules and say, you keep them and I'll love and accept you. That's not Christianity, that's religion. Jesus didn't come to start a religion. Jesus came to begin a relationship. You see, it's not what we do to earn his acceptance. He accepts us as we are with all of our flaws and imperfections. What we need is his grace and his mercy. You see, a church that is divided is a weak church. But a church that is united is unstoppable. So people with very different perspectives accept one another. What do you do in matters where we don't agree? Well, <clears throat> no matter when the Bible is clear, we will draw the lines where the Bible draws them. Where the Bible is unclear, we'll extend mercy and grace to each other because we are family. Secondly, every believer needs hope. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter would say, I have been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I have a hope that is sure, a hope that is certain. 
and my hope has nothing to do with politics. Politics is divisive, adversarial, and combative. My hope is not in the next election or in the midterm. My hope has nothing to do with the Washington football team. People will say they are not in the Bible, and I disagree, because the Bible says that God is near the brokenhearted to those who are crushed in spirit. I'm not hoping in next year's draft or even the acquisitions from another team. No, my hope is bigger than Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Washington football team. My hope is in Jesus Christ and his promises he made to me and to you that I go to prepare a place for you and I will come again. I may be disappointed about politics and sports, but I know I will never be disappointed with him because what he has in store for us no eye has ever seen, no ear has ever heard, and no mind can even conceive. We need hope. And thirdly, every believer needs encouragement. Encouragement. Look with me at Romans 15, verse 14. I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you are yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge and competent to instruct one another. This is the time when we look up in the sky and we see the geese flying south, don't we? They fly in a V formation, and the head goose breaks the wind for the other geese. And the geese behind just get a little updraft in, from the head goose. And the, goose, the geese in formation honk to the head goose. And this is meant to encourage the head goose because sometimes... It's hard to be a head goose. <laughs> the wind is blowing hard into the head goose's face, and there's a storm brewing on the horizon, and you come fatigued in the journey. Would you give me the privilege of being, for your, being to you your head goose for a moment through this pandemic? Someday I will surrender my position as head goose and let someone else lead you. But for right now, we're going to step into the deeper side of love and truly accept one another from the heart with all of our differences. We're going to hold on to hope and not put our hope in politics or sports. And we're going to find ways to encourage one another because everybody needs to be encouraged. Paul here was bringing encouragement to the church. He calls them his brothers. The point is here of common identity. They're in family together. He says, I believe that you're full of goodness, kindness, and generosity. What he's doing here is he is believing the best about them. You see, when a person believes in Jesus Christ through faith, God does a transformation. He plants goodness in their heart. A person who is good has a high moral character. They enjoy good books and good food and good movies, good conversation. They do good work. They have high integrity because they live a godly life. Secondly, he says you're filled with all knowledge. It's the knowledge of God that produces goodness in us. It's the truth of God that produces godly character. Filled with knowledge here refers to being filled to overflowing. Being filled with knowledge doesn't mean that we know everything, but they have a comprehensive understanding of the Christian faith. They have an understanding of the counsel of God. After all, Paul had just given them the book of Romans, and this allows them to know the truth on a deeper level. Thirdly, you are able to, competent to instruct and admonish one another. 
To admonish means to instruct, to give advice, to give counsel, to exhort. Speaking to one another out of, into each other's life, we give each other guidance and counsel and advice. We need on a practical level to live the Christian life. Jay Adams wrote a book entitled Competent to Counsel that comes out of this admonishment idea. You see, we need to encourage one another. The devil is the great discourager, the great divider. The Holy Spirit is the great encourager. We need to look for ways to build each other up in these times. Fourth, we need, we need to be able to speak the truth to one another, to remind each other of the truth. And this is a huge point. Christ has conquered our enemy, and we are more than conquerors. Paul writes in verse 15, I've written to you quite boldly on some points. Paul heard there was division in the church. He was bold to tell them to preserve the unity by allowing people the freedom to follow their conscience. He was bold to tell them to stop passing judgment on one another, to stop looking down on one another, to stop condemning each other, to stop making your brothers stumble. He was bold to speak daringly, confidently, openly, directly about the issues that were facing them in Rome. So, we need to be forthright and bold with one another. Fifth, every believer needs an assignment to serve. Look with me at verses 16 and following. Here's Paul's assignment. He says, To be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what God Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I've said and done. In other words, he draws this metaphor of a priest making an offering to God. And the Gentiles that are coming to faith, being sanctified by the Spirit, are Paul's offering to the Lord. As he, as he goes from city to city and people are coming to faith, he's offering them back to God as an offering. Paul's message was the gospel, and his joy was seeing people come to faith. Finally, every believer needs to have a godly ambition. Paul said, it has been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Paul was a pioneer missionary, and he felt like he could not do it alone. He went from city to city, from place to place, where they had never heard the gospel, never heard the name of Jesus. He went into synagogues to reach the Jews. He went into the marketplace to reach the Gentiles. He adapted himself to the people he was with, to the Jews he became like a Jew, to the Gentiles he became like a Gentile. Paul believed that we must win the lost at every cost. Sooner or later, people will get around to asking the big questions of life. What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of my life? Why am I here upon this earth? Why do I exist? We as human beings want to achieve something, don't we? We want our lives to count. That's because 
God has wired us for something more. You see, we think the degree that we get might do it. We think that our marriage might do it. We think the house we want to acquire might do it. So we seek and we search. Why do people search after fame? They want to be noticed. You are noticed by God. You are loved by God. And your life really does matter. Listen to some famous people talk about being famous and rich. Katy Perry, who now one of the judges on The Voice, said recently, after 100 million digital singles, I still am insecure. Listen to comedian Jim Carrey. He said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that isn't the answer. Hashtag dumb and dumber. Tom Brady, quarterback now for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He was asked recently, after the Super Bowl, what have you learned about yourself? And he said, I still think there's something greater for me that I don't have. What is greater? You'll find the answer in the Bible, the B-I-B-L-E, basic instruction before leaving earth. This is the manual of life you've been searching for. The rich young ruler had something missing in his life. He asked Jesus, what do I have to do to get eternal life? And Jesus said, keep the commandments. Why did Jesus say to him, keep the commandments? Well, the Ten Commandments weren't given for, uh, to prove that we were righteous. They were given to show how messed up we are, that we need God. Every person in this room, on this planet, has broken the commandments. The thief on the cross he had broken the commandments. And he said to Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. No matter what sin you've committed in your life, he will forgive you if you ask him for his forgiveness. I've heard people say, I'm in the process of becoming a Christian. It doesn't take years to become a Christian. This very day, you can choose to follow him. You see, we're like the prodigal son, the prodigal daughter. We walk away from God, and we don't want to live like the Bible says, so we find our own emptiness. You ask, how would God react if I believed? He'd say, welcome home, my son, my daughter. The young man who appeared before Jesus, that Jesus told him to give up his possessions. Why? Because he was possessed by his possessions. You say, will I have to give something up, Pastor R? The answer is yes. You'll have to give up your emptiness to replace it with fullness. You'll have to give up your misery to replace it with joy. You'll have to give up your sin to replace it with forgiveness. You'll have to give up hell in order to trade it in for heaven. Yes, there is life after this life. There are two destinations, heaven and hell. Someone asked, how could a God of love send someone to hell? God doesn't send anybody to hell. That's why he sent Jesus to die on a cross to absorb God's judgment in your place. You get to choose in this life where you'll spend eternity. As a young man, I made a lot of bad decisions. I was using drugs. I was drinking alcohol profusely. And the Jesus movement was happening back then in the late 70s. And one of my friends had become a Jesus follower. 
And I saw my friend carrying a Bible around. I said, what's wrong with you? I was the guy that heckled the guy on the steps of the University of Maryland library. He was preaching the gospel. My first thought about my friend was, you're crazy. I mean, you're one taco short of a combination. And then I went down to a place called Fishnet. And there was this guy, still remembering, he had a gray beard. He looked like a pilgrim. He had a black top hat, black suit, about 95 degrees, sweating like a horse. And he says, the Lord has spoken unto me that one of you is going to be saved. And I said, look how pathetic these Christians are. Look how happy these Christians are. What if they're right? What if Jesus is for real? What if he could forgive all my sin? I knew about how alcohol could ruin a life. I knew alcohol wasn't the answer. I had dabbled in drugs. I knew that drugs weren't the answer. Could Jesus be the answer? And he said, if you want to believe in Jesus, come forward. I didn't come. But I asked Debbie, I said, Debbie, what does it mean to be saved? And Debbie explained to me that night what it meant to be saved. And I was saved. It was the greatest day of my life. And this could be the greatest day of your life. What is the meaning of life? It's to know God who created you and start a relationship with him. Why are you here? You're here to walk with God because he gives you hope now and forever. What do I need to do? I need to come clean and admit the truth that I'm a sinner. The sin means to cross the line. And everybody here has sinned. You've hated somebody, you've stolen something, you've told a lie. And then you need to believe that Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God who died on the cross for you. God demonstrates his love for you in that when you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. People think if I live a good life, I'll get to heaven. No matter how good you are, you'll never be good enough to get to heaven. Heaven isn't for good people. Heaven is for forgiven people. Eternal life is a gift from God. Now, have you ever noticed, I'll stop, but you ever noticed the difference between a man and a woman opening a gift? If you give a woman a gift with a card, she'll actually read the card. You want to read that card beforehand because she's actually going to read the card. And then she's going to slowly, painstakingly kind of unwrap it, maybe save the ribbon, and kind of take the, you know, slowly the paper, kind of take the paper off and just, oh, this is such a beautiful gift. A man won't read the card, just looks to see if there's money or a gift card inside. <laughs> I don't really care how you open this gift because it's a gift that God wants to give you. It's called the gift of eternal life, the gift of forgiveness. But you've got to receive the gift. And you receive the gift by faith. As many as received him, he gave the right to be called the sons of God. I read about a guy named Kareem Nakuma, who was one of the 13 Marines who was killed in the Afghanistan time. He, he went to heaven. He had gone to a crusade a few weeks before and heard the gospel and believed. You never know when your time will come. But here in this moment, you have an opportunity to believe. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you motivated Paul to take this precious gospel all over the Roman world 
from Jerusalem to Illyricum, the people there who had never heard before could hear that he could build a foundation that had never been built, build a church that never existed before. A pioneer missionary. And we feel as if in our own land, we have strayed so far from you, Gordon. We have, um, we have sinned against you. We've taken the lives of the unborn. We redefine marriage. We have um, taken you out of our schools. We're sorry, Lord. We're deeply sorry for our sins. But we personally have sinned as well. And God, we need your forgiveness. There's been sins of our hearts and sins of our actions, sins of our words. God, we know the sin that has hounded us, that has plagued us. And we need your forgiveness. So Jesus, in this very hour, we ask you for the forgiveness of our sins. And if that's your prayer, just say, Lord, forgive me. We believe that you died in our place on a cross. We believe that you rose again from the dead. We believe that you're alive, you're changing people. God, you wanna change us. You wanna transform us. You wanna give us hope in the midst of a hopeless world. You wanna give us peace in the midst of the chaos. You wanna give us joy over our despair. God, you wanna do a deep work in our lives and you wanna teach us how to accept one another and build unity within your church. You want your church to be on mission. So would you raise us up, Lord, to be the remnant, the people of God who believe that this hour, that you are God, that there's good news, there's hope. God, would you use us to be your instruments as you used the Apostle Paul many, many years ago. God, we wanna serve you. We wanna make you known. We wanna be all about the cause of Christ. We pray together in Jesus' name.